Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 217 of the Chills of World podcast. Pleasure to be joined by Jeffrey or Jeff Charlotte. Jeff Charlotte is New York, the New York Times slash national bestselling author of The Family and C Street. He's also executive producer of the 2019 Netflix documentary series based on the work with the documentary also called The Family. His newest book and the thrust of our conversation today is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. He is the Frederick Sessions BB35 Professor in the Art of Writing at Dartmouth College. Good evening. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Pete. Good to be with oh, you. Oh, so great to talk to you. Can I, am I guessing right that it's that like the chair that you hold or the, in the department, is that like 1935 graduate? A 1935 graduate who's, uh, uh, who was publisher of the Washington Post during uh, Watergate. And if folks have seen that Watergate movie, Fritz Beebe, um, uh, I can't remember the actor who portrays him, but you know uh -huh. that was like he, he he was instrumental in in the life of the paper, but instrumental in the life of the nation in terms of sure. his role. So his family endowed uh, a chair, and they gave it to me, and that's what helps me write my books. All right. Did he have the same role as like as Jeff Bezos does now with the Washington Post? That is good question. Huh. Um, no, in the sense he was not supplying the money. He had He's a business. More on the yeah, 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 yeah. He had he, he played some kind of business role in in the paper. Yeah, I guess yeah. You. No, no, he did not uh, invent Amazon. Yeah, the Jeff. Yeah, they, they, someday there will be a Jeff Bezos chair, and then sure. someone has to hold it. And what an embarrassing! Like in the one hand, you're like glad. All right, this is paying to be called the Jeff Bezos Professor. Not cool. Yeah, a little bit of a difference in salary scales and difference in kind of oh, scope. Scope. Elon right? Musk Professor. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> but this is this is the history of you know I mean Dartmouth College where I teach is named after the Earl of Dartmouth, who really had very little to do with the founding of the college. He gave a little bit of money, but the it should be named Occam. Who is uh, okay. uh, uh, an 18th century best-selling writer, an indigenous man, a Native American man, best-selling writer, mm -hmm. and they're like, okay, we want to found this college, and everyone loved his books, so they said, go on a tour of England and raise money, mm. and one of the donors with Dartmouth, and so they named it Dartmouth instead of Occam College. But I would uh... anyway. This is not our our, wow. our topic is not <laughs> Dartmouth College history, but there we go. Well, shoot, we can do a whole episode on that. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and, and no relation to Occam's Razor. No, no, di okay. different Occam, right? But like, right. You know, that's the thing. If you called your college Occam College, it would have that resonance. And people oh, would like, you know what? That college is the bottom line. That that college is the the straight deal. So Yeah. I think we figured Dartmouth, all out in these few know, minutes. About, what does it even uh, mean? Uh -huh. It's yeah. all about connections, right? We figured out there's so many connections. Everything is connected. It's like three degrees of Kevin Bacon, you know? Man, exactly, exactly. six degrees. It's a pleasure to talk to you, like I said. And I'd love to know, you know, some of what, what shaped you as a reader and a writer. Um, you know, we, we always, the bookworm as a kid, 
you know, are you from uh, like a professor's family? What were you reading? Was, you know, was the written word um, a big part of your childhood, I guess, is my question. Yeah, it, it, it was. And it's funny that you asked from um, a professor's family. Uh, my dad was a professor and I swore never to be a professor. Mm. Um, my sister is a professor. She's a, wow. a professor of medieval Arabic and Persian literature. I didn't go to graduate school, so I'm out. And then I became a writer, and that's the other path you might end up mm. in, in academia. And sure. uh, my dad was a Sovietologist, which is someone who studied a political scientist who studied the Soviet Union. It's a discipline that doesn't exist anymore because there's no uh -huh. Soviet Union anymore. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, the thing that allows me to write, I think, about right wing movements in particular in the United States and books like The Undertow and so on, mm. is, and I want to be careful about how I do this uh, as a kid. I love books many kids loved, uh, Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I was really fascinated with that kind of magical world building. And as I got older uh, and understood those things aren't real, I'm still interested in that. And, and when I go into these kind of right-wing communities, and I think this allows me to see what they're doing, because most of us were not of that political inclination to see the, like, the ugliness of the right. And I, and I definitely see that. But I also see them engaged in acts of world building, um, right. Right. that they are trying to do the same thing, that they are trying to imagine what in their minds would be a utopian world. Right. And yet there are many obstacles. You know, it's it's uh, it's the Lord of the Rings. And, and it's funny because so many of these right wingers love those same texts. They uh -huh. love the rings. I remember reporting at a mega church and they had used all kinds of Lord, Lord of the Rings reference. C.S. Lewis's. Chronicles of Narnia, uh -huh. of course, is a Christian allegory, although I didn't know that when I was a kid okay, and yeah. probably wouldn't have liked it if I had. So, <laughs> yeah, it, I was a bookish kid and a comic book kid. Uh -huh. and, uh, I think that enabled me to uh, fall up into the kind of the weird and magical and more frightening world of, of right wing movements today. Sure. Obviously, like you said, it's kind of an it's kind of extinct, the idea of the Sovietology, but. Mm -hmm. I also have to figure it was a small world. Like, did he, would he have worked with like Condoleezza Rice? No, I didn't work with Condoleezza Rice. My dad was older than that. Uh, okay. He, um, uh, and I think this is formative too, when I think about like, uh, you know, talking about how one becomes a writer and how one learns these things. So my yeah. father, uh, um, this is going to college in the 1950s. You have to do military service sooner or later. So he decides he's going to drop out of college. Um, and he's going to do his military service and he's going to write his great American novel. And lucky him, he gets sent to army language school. Mm. And he learns Czech and Russian huh. and he gets sent to West Germany. And it's a fantastic Cold War. His job is to listen to things, you know, intercept things and and, and translate them and then wander around uh, West Berlin. So his younger brother, after whom I'm named, 1963, six years younger, decides, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. This looks great. I'm going to drop out of college and go to army language school. It's 1963. So they say, you're going to learn Vietnamese. Whoa. And he tries to funk out and they say, nobody funks Vietnamese. And he gets sent over. He gets sent over. So it's my uncle Jeff. He gets sent over and uh, his very first job is translating um, what was the assassination, the U.S. Uh, essentially sanction, sanctioned assassination of Ho Chi Minh. Oh, no, sorry, Ho Chi Minh. Um, a little farther back, right? No, yeah, no, no, Ho Chi Minh is a little later. That, that's that's <laughs> North Vietnamese. The, 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 the South Vietnamese sort of puppet government and okay. was our ally. And then the general said enough. And so they're going to take him out. And so he's sitting there. He's like this young guy. He learns Vietnamese. He's hearing this. And he realizes the world is not as huh. it would be. Then he, because he speaks Vietnamese, his job is he's a translator for torturers. And it's horrific. It's early in the war. He comes back and he founds um, what would become a network. I mean, this is a great story in itself. Yeah. Uh, 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 a paper, a newspaper called Vietnam GI, buy and for GIs, an anti-war paper. This is long before John Kerry, much more militant than John Kerry. And um, I'm just realizing younger readers or listeners are like, John Kerry would who? <laughs> um, uh, and um, 
and he died in 1969. He had been exposed not to Agent Orange, which we've heard about. Agent Orange was actually the diluted form of something called Agent Purple. It sounds like a joke, but it's oh a terrible gosh, yeah. And he died at 27 and 69. I was named after him. So I grow up sort of with this idea of, on the one hand, this magical world, Narnia, you know, the Middle Earth. On the other hand, like I'm named after this guy who died trying to tell the truth about what was happening in Vietnam. And, um, and you know, that's a path. It's laid out before you. And, and, and I ended up trying to take it and trying to honor that name. So, yeah, oh that's background. Well, thanks for sharing that story. It's so horrible to hear about the way that he died. And, oh, but what a legacy, huh? My yeah, that there ended up being. I mean, and that's a. This is sort of like a. I think about this now because right, we're here. We are in this moment, and the the book is subtitled, you know, a slow civil war. Right, well, this is where we are, and and that means thinking about, you know, we all know that kind of internet stuff of the resistance, right? Sure. Uh, but really, seriously, how do we struggle in these times of impending or ascendant uh -huh. fascism, right? And I think about what these guys did. This is before the internet. So he makes this little newspaper. It's all, and the, it's 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 American Samizdat, you know, underground. And and it tells you, tells you how, what's really going on in the war, what's really happening. Mm -hmm. This is not stars and stripes. Start spreading around. Um, you can get court-martialed for holding it if you're in Vietnam. Okay. But other guys at other bases, uh, start making their own newspapers. So it ended up, there's a, uh, an archive at New York University, about 300 of these papers, different papers, each little base. And it's a little bit like before the internet, you know, we were joking around about inventing the internet. It's a little bit before the internet, these guys invented a kind of social media, yeah. but it passed on hand by hand and they built a resistance and 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 that's important to me actually in terms of thinking about that resistance we imagine and now i know we're going back way before but this is sort of relevant to how do we understand like like what 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 can we do to stop fascism today um the the official story right of how we ended the vietnam war is protesters went out in the streets historians of the era know that's that really didn't do much. Uh, what ended the Vietnam War, first of all, let's be really clear, was the Vietnamese. They won. Mm. They won. Yeah. Um, the second thing was the mass scale mutiny of US soldiers. Really? Um, and on a on a scale that I mean it's been written about in scholarly books, never really in a public, you know, public history book. Uh -huh. And 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 that's fascinating to me. That's all organized. Like, how do you, how do you, I look at today, um, uh, I look at since, you know, the penultimate chapter of The Undertow is about uh, um, the aftermath of the downfall of Roe. And um, what we don't get reported, and I was just talking to friends, and I'm not going to go into too many details right now, all, all, all the underground abortion providing networks that are springing up, that have long been planned in those anti-abortion states. And, um, you know, you see that kind of work. There's the kind of work that takes place like a million people in the street, hooray! Uh -huh. And then there's the hard gritty work of um, how do I get my anti-Vietnam paper to this guy at the next right. base? Or how do I get this pregnant person across the Texas border right now so that she is not forced to bear a child they don't want to force. And and that kind of social creativity is always there and, and and very exciting to me. Wow. Do you, I wonder because of your experience, because of your familiar experience, do you, have you tended to gravitate towards Vietnam literature, fiction or nonfiction, or kind of like, I'd rather not, I think I, like I, Tobias Wolf or something, you know? I have I've read Tobias Wolf and, and uh, you know, when I, when I was growing up, my, my, my father was one of the, uh, he was actually one of the first college professors to teach a course about Vietnam wow. in uh, 76 or 75. Oh, um, and then when I was growing up, you know, he was always developing the course and, uh, and he would show films. And uh, this is in the very, very early days of VCRs and such. We didn't have them at home. So we'd go to the college to see them and, you know, 
uh, I'd be hanging out with my dad and he's like, well, I've got, you know, I got to decide if I'm going to use this film. I'm going to go uh, look at uh, this film, The Apocalypse Now. You can come with me. I'm like, oh, Damn. man. You know? So <laughs> I, I was watching those movies and I grew up watching those movies and Hamburger <laughs> Hill and all those kinds of things. And uh, for a while, I thought of writing um, and, and an earlier book of mine that nobody's seen called uh, Sweet Heaven When I Die, although it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, there's an essay called Bad Moon Rising, and it's about that legacy of the first Jeff Charlotte as a writer and um, as a person who was just doing their best to tell the truth and so on. And I had thought about writing a book about um, that whole story, and I haven't in some ways because every time I think I've written, I've been writing about right-wing movements for 20 years. And every time I think, okay, I've paid my dues. I've written enough about this stuff. There's other things I want to write about. It feels too urgent, you know, right now. I mean, this book, The Undertow, it's like, I'm done. I, I, the last book I did was not this kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm done with this kind of thing. And then my kids, I have a 14 and a 10 now, but you know, a few years ago, and I'm like trying to tell them, how do I speak to my kids? Well, growing up in the age of Trump, how do I give them hope? And in the age of climate crisis, so-called, sure. uh, how do I say it's going to be okay? I can't say it's going to be okay. That's a lie. I don't know that. Yeah. I can say, here's how we struggle, right? No cheap grace, no false notes. Yeah. And, and so I keep getting dragged back into the present. And it feels in some ways like an honor to have those uh. have those to have the ability to do something with that, to be able to say something to my kids, to say, look, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to use my skills to report on this and tell these stories. It might illuminate this for others. Uh-huh. Uh, that's how we find some hope is by looking at the thing clearly, looking yeah. at it in the sunlight. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Man, the Sopranos. There's <laughs> all the Sopranos, it turns out. Every story back to the Sopranos. <laughs> What you were just saying, uh, I I did I just just popped into my head. I don't know that you even know the answer, but I don't know. I think of like page the pageantry of like not pageantry. That's not the word, but you know World War Two and like the right wing movements that you've you've covered, and some of them obviously like outright um, idolize the Nazis and horrible right wing folks like that and fascists. How do they see? But I could also see like a weird, you know, like a idolatry, if you will, of like the American forces. You know what I mean? There was just band of brothers that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if if there's any if right wing in general. I know that's hard to to generalize. What they see with the Vietnam War, if anything, you know what I mean? Was that like, oh man, we got we got screwed. We tried to take it to those communists. Like, how how do they see that? Well, I mean, you know, you're a teacher. I I teach students just a few years older than yours, and uh-huh. what's to me is to see that young people today barely know what the Vietnam War yes. was. Yes. They don't know what the Soviet Union was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, this has been the dilemma of a lot of uh, public school education. Like, let's stop a little bit shy of where things get really controversial and uh-huh. just talk about that, right? Because we don't want to argue with parents. Right. And I think about, uh, I'm 51 and I've been writing, you know, for a while. I think about in the uh, sort of early days of my writing life, um, the last book I published called was called This Brilliant Darkness in 2020. And in it, it is a story um, from the very beginning of my writing life. I'm like 2021, 20, writing for an alt weekly in San Diego and writing on homelessness, the homelessness beat. And uh-huh. it was this homeless guy who was living outside the place uh, where I was staying. And he would read my stuff and he kind of think like, it's all right, but you know, you kind of got it wrong. And um, I remember talking uh about him, Jim, and I ended up writing about Jim and and him sort of bringing me into that world in a way that I couldn't see as an outsider. Mm. And um, Jim would introduce himself to me as a Vietnam vet and a veteran of a particularly horrific siege at a place called Quezon. And I remember telling my dad that I'm like, yeah, I'm talking to this guy. He's like, really? How old is this guy? And I can't remember how old he is. So my dad does the math in his head and he says, so wait a minute, he was 13 when he was at Quezon. Wait a minute. No, so that guy wasn't there. But when I was young, that's how you spoke of the whole, a lot of homeless guys Uh in Vietnam because they're trying to convey they are victims of a broad kind of assault on human dignity. And the only language people can hear is Vietnam. And they can hear from the left and they can hear from the right. Uh And at 
time we have movies like, you know, Rambo and First Blood redefining that Vietnam story. Look, I grew up on this stuff, too. And I don't know, you you look a few years younger than me, but we're probably in the same ballpark. Um, I think of uh, 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 Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze. Okay. the Soviets invade middle America and Patrick Swayze leads the football team <laughs> out into the mountains in Colorado where they become guerrilla fighters. Right. Yeah. And man, this movie is super exciting. Uh, and, and I love this as a kid and it's a romance. Sure. And I think for the right through Rambo, through Red Dawn, uh-huh. um, Red Dawn, which was made by a guy named John Milius. Um, whose daughter now is a leading figure of the contemporary right. Mm. Um, uh, the the uh, Who also wrote, by the way, Apocalypse Now. You know, ah, wow. you start to see the romance of despair and war. Sure. Um, and the undertow, there's a, a photograph of a young man uh, that I met in Wisconsin. And it's just a close-up of his chest, right? And he's got a cross a crucifix and at the center of the crucifix is uh part of a, a ruger uh bullet shell casing mm-hmm. and he's a marksman um and on the back of his shirt is rambo and here it is decades later this guy is 19 right the way i was 19 at, you know at that time and that myth of rambo i i wonder i i would have loved to ask that guy i didn't think to ask him like do you even know vietnam yeah like, yeah like what you know? What is Vietnam? He might not even know the name of the country, but that myth of the stabbed in the back soldier, and that comes, that becomes central. So, in in the book, you know, the undertow, the title essay is dedicated to, in some ways, following the the ghost, the myth of this woman Ashley Babbitt, this right. this thirty something white uh, uh, white woman killed on January 6, twenty twenty one, goes there to storm the Capitol. She puts it to be boots on the ground uh-huh. for Donald Trump, and she's a veteran, fourteen years, yeah. two theaters, Afghanistan and Iraq. Right, yeah. joined at seventeen. wasn't always a fascist. Was a Democrat. Second favorite president was Obama. Right, uh-huh. but she goes and she gets killed. And the reason I knew she was going to be a martyr. One, she was a white woman killed by a black man. Old racist story in American life. But two, she's a veteran. She had actually been a member of, when she was in the military, something called the Capitol Guardians. Their job was to guard the Capitol. And she gets shot by a Capitol police officer. This is is central to the Rambo story, to the Vietnam story. And you go all the way back, World War I story. It's called the stabbed in the back myth it's uh, a german okay. word for it i can't pronounce it okay the stabbed in the back the idea that an honest veteran the state has turned sour has turned uh, poor, yeah and it's betrayed her and so i think that is the legacy that what vietnam in the, the war in vietnam infused in american life is a kind of despair but also an American version of the stabbed in the back myth. Because you were talking about the World War II stories. In the World War yeah. II stories, you know, the Americans are always heroes, whether they always were or not, sure. right? In Vietnam, it's messy. They're betrayed. Rambo says, mm. remember Rambo, Sylvester Stallone says, we're going to be allowed to win this time. You know, do we have to fight this war with uh-huh. one behind our back? Yeah. Prelude to the deep state. The idea that... Uh-huh make America great again, it would be great, but there are people within, enemies within, who are sure. undermined. Sure. That's a pretty dang good Stallone impression, by the way. No, thank you. Thank that you. Was good. That was good. Yeah. That was good. I think I was kind of not raised on, but like, I, I mean, I, the Vietnam movies I think of are like apocalypse now, which is, I guess you could see how you romanticize, but it's, you know, I mean, that's dark shoot on born on the 4th of July. That's yeah. 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 You know, I mean, just depressing. Ron, uh, what's his name? Ron, Ron Kovic. Story of a hero. Yeah. Ron, Ron what was it? Kovic. Yeah. Kovic, Kovic or Kovic. Yeah. Kovic. So, but, but I, I definitely see what you're talking about with the, the romanticize. I mean, platoon. think about platoon, right? So yeah. platoon was Full metal jacket. <laughs> 
Full Metal Jacket. I mean, I've watched all these movies and, and the romance of those movies. Let me take Tune, maybe Academy Award, Willem Dafoe. Uh -huh. It's an anti-war movie made by Oliver Stone. The yeah. signature image that you remember from Platoon, mm -hmm. Willem Dafoe running. He's been betrayed by fellow soldiers, not stabbed in the back, sure. but been betrayed by the military. And he's running and he falls to his knees mm -hmm. and his arms are outspread. The same Willem Dafoe who plays Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ. Yes. He's crucified. Uh... Right? This is the romance. It's a it's the beautiful death. Uh-huh. You dot, it's a martyr. It's a martyr story. So you yeah. can even have an anti-war movie. Mm. I would say Apocalypse Now is. I think it's a great work of art. Uh huh. And it is an anti-war story, and it's also a romantic story. Yeah. I mean, it is gorgeously shot. It is aesthetic. Sure. Uh, uh, I think about this now because as I'm traveling around the country for this book, The Undertow, and talking to people about civil war. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things after January 6th, I started hearing academic scholarly historians, my wife's a historian, um, not of this era, so she wasn't through this, mm -hmm. but other historians saying like, wait a minute, the, the, the conditions of civil war are actually almost present here. Mm -hmm. And that kind of talk had been fringe right wing talk. But now I hear very cautious historians talking about this. So I go out and I start talking to people and, and I really only get one answer. Yes. And two variations, is it uh, uh, yes, and I can't wait, you know? Mm. The, the, the blood is thrumming in their cheeks yeah. as they think yeah. about it. And yes, or yes, it's sad, but it must happen. But all these people are not really, they're imagining a war movie. They're not imagining war. And I think about this now, when I think about every now and then, and this breaks my heart. And if if you got lefty listeners who are out there like, well, those right wingers think they got guns. We got guns too. First of all, there's 400 million guns in civilian hands in the United States. Half the civilian gun, uh, civilian held guns in the world on the planet are in the United States. Wow. And and, and no, they're not in the lefty John Brown gun clubs. Sure. Uh, there's a little bit of that. But also, I I see I meet young folks who are like, yeah, we'll fight them in the streets. Uh huh. There is no good civil war. And so, what about the civil war? We won. We ended slavery. Did we? You right. know, it, it lingers with us. It's an awful, awful thing. And in part, I wrote this book. I didn't want it to be romantic uh -huh. and beautiful in a sense. Yeah. I wanted us to sort of think like, look at the broken people. Yeah, we're fantasizing about this. Look at the brokenness in yourself and put that fantasy aside and do what you need to do to avoid that horrible situation. Well, I want to get back to that in a minute. No, no, sometimes I'm not so good at this. So I love to do this first. Um, tell us, you know, give us some of the info about the book, you know, where where you might recommend we buy it. Obviously, it's available everywhere. Do you have any particular, you know, favorite bookstores? Where, where am I talking to you at? Where, where? Sacramento, where California. Well, Sacramento, Sacramento, yeah. Because well, it's in the, featured in the book, yeah, yeah. You featured in the city. book, but I, while I was there, I didn't get to visit any bookstores. So I want you to go to whatever <laughs> in Sacramento is. I'll shout out Capital Bookstores, but um, but yeah, I mean, are you like like you know bookshop.org or particular places in your area? Yeah, I mean, look, look, you know, get the buy, get the book wherever you can. Amazon's a problem. I don't uh -huh. judge people for buying from Amazon, <laughs> um, but buy independent if you can. And I'll say this: so that this is a book about the threat we face uh from impending fascism and i think libraries into a lesser extent but still there independent books yeah get it from your library yeah they don't have it say well you order it so i can read it and someone else can read it you know mm -hmm. um those those places are on the front line and the right knows this this is why they're book banning movements this is why you know uh guys with guns sometimes line up outside of libraries mm. And uh, in independent bookstores too, and I'm not like I'm not I'm not romantic about independent bookstores. A lot of them, sure. Um, but we still got to go with them, right? A lot of them, like, oh, you're an independent bookstore, and that's why you stock only the top fifty titles from Amazon. And you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you have freedom, choose what you want, and they don't always do that. But still, you hold on. And your local library, your local library might just have shelves and shelves of bestsellers because that's uh -huh. what people 
want to check out, right? Yeah. To hold on to those institutions in the same way that you still vote. You say, well, I vote and, you know, the machine, the electoral college is kind of messed up and so on. The institution isn't perfect. You still have yeah. to hold on to it because the alternative. So go get this book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War from your library or your independent bookstore Ooh. or, you know, bookshop.org. Or, or or wherever it, wherever it is and 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 do get it i would say because i think i think when i started writing this book and i came up with that subtitle scene i've been reporting on the right for 20 years but i was like well i've been looking at the undertow the currents that are leading us to this moment and then i thought well now this slow civil war you know what uh maybe 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 i, I maybe it's going to be calmed down you know yeah. maybe by the time this book comes out people are like oh god how hyperbolic <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That uh, this is the week that Donald Trump, the ninety-nine all but certain front runner, not only for the Republican nomination, but for the presidency. No candidate has ever come back since polling began in nineteen forty-five from the hole that Biden is in now. Trump is leading. People say, oh, it's just old white guys. Trump is leading in 18 to 29 year olds. Trump is leading with LGBTQ writers. Trump is has historic leads now, not leads, but like percentages uh -huh. of every minority group. America, I thought he might have to steal the election. He doesn't have to. He's he, yeah. he might win it, right? So we are facing this moment. So now we have to say, okay, well, what? is the moment how do we look at it and that's what the book is and it's not wonky or telling you right you know it's not expository it's wondering it's traveling and this is how i think the other subtitle i you know i would never give the book the subtitle because i'm not so presumptuous how to tell stories about fascism hmm. well the truth is i don't really fully know but as a journalist covering the right for 20 years journalist for 30 years i know that whatever we're doing is not working mm -hmm. i'm watching the press return not to 2020 but to 2016 reporting on horse race nikki haley up five points who the <laughs> fuck cares seriously these are seriously. not contenders let us report on <laughs> the front runner saying quoting hitler right and then right. saying he said this week he said several times he says the immigrants from all over the world from south america from africa from asia they They're are poisoning, poisoning right? the uh -huh. blood of our nation and then just in case he didn't get it, he does it again yeah and then he says you know i haven't read mine comp which was real weird because nobody had asked him uh -huh. you know it's a little bit like uh uh, uh what right? the old political thing if you have to answer the question uh, uh no why no i don't beat my wife trump uh -huh. No one asked him. He's like, by the way, if you're thinking I sound like Hitler, yeah, I yeah. have read the book from which I just literally plagiarized a lot. Yeah. Poisoning the nation, declaring his enemies vermin. And I just spent the last couple of weeks reading something called Project 2025. You don't want to know. 900 pages by the right-wing think tanks giving Trump the full blueprint he needs from day one to declare the insurrection act martial law to start creating concentration camps to criminalize uh trans folks it is everything that he wanted to do and trump won but didn't have the wonk power to do it so that's why we've got to face this stuff and i can see that people saying like i don't want to read this book because i just don't want to yeah. know <laughs> My no, hope you do is want to read this book. You do want to you do want to read the book, and I try and frame it with some hope and some loveliness and some beautiful and, uh, and some songs and so on. Mm -hmm. But even when I'm in the dark places, to try and tell it as a story rather than a cudgel. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that'll work. It's it's my it's my bet. It's my hope. He he doesn't even want to be president, right? He doesn't want to do the duties. He, I mean, I, I just what you're talking about him and just all of these things that will affect millions and millions of lives. He just doesn't care about anything other than his ego. And he doesn't even want to be president. He didn't want to be president. I, I just, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. <laughs> you mentioned, I think in the book, the, you know, when, when Barack Obama, you know, kind of was playing with them at that, at the correspondence dinner or whatever, like, I mean, what yeah. an ego that just, I mean, and, and this is a man who's what, 70, seven years Seven? old. He'd be 78 if he, if he takes office. Well, he didn't want to be president. Uh, version one he thought like this would be an opportunity but now yeah he really does want to be yeah. president the thing is we have to understand i tried to be careful about using the term trump and trumpism trumpism uh -huh. so we, if you talk to political scientists they'll say 
the age of Reagan doesn't go from 1980 to 1988. It goes from 1980 to 2016. And you say, how could that be? We got Barack Obama, we got Bill Clinton. Because in that long span, right? Um, in that 1980-2016, politics in America is determined by the parameters of Reaganism. And you have a conservative version, the Bushes, and uh, you have a liberal version, the Obama and the Clintons and so on. Right. But it's still, this is the imagination. Yeah. 2016, with Trump's victory, we enter what I call in the book, the Trumpocene, the age mm -hmm. of Trump. Now, this means that we're every politician out there is still talking in terms of Trumpism. Uh -huh. This is why you have every other Republican candidate. They're all all the they're, they're campaigning on Trump's platform, yeah. right? The Republican Party is on Trump's platform. So so now we're in the Trump scene, the age of Trump, and that determines things. So when we think about like, well, Trump this, Trump that, we got to think about Trumpism. And uh, when so when I'm traveling around the country, I'm talking to everyday people. And I've done a lot of reporting on what I call the broadcast, the elites, right? The the, uh, the Republican machine, how that presents it. This is more about the reception, everyday right. people, how they interpret it, translate it into their church, into their community, into their militia. And that's a lot of everyday folks bringing fascism into their everyday life, yeah. bringing the precepts of Trumpism into their everyday life. The concern about Trump is not well, it is the man himself, but it's also the million little Trumps who were empowered on your school board, uh -huh. your your town hall. I mean, I'm here in Vermont, uh, which is a blue, blue state. And um, uh, we've had some scary stuff. We've had a, a town where trans, uh, a, a trans kid and in, in their family was basically run out of town. Um, Fox News picked up local opposition to this kid playing volleyball. Mm. Uh, and you say, well, that's just, that's a bad apple kind of situation. Mm -hmm. This is Trumpism and enables. And I wanted to give that atmosphere yeah. at the every day. And I can say, since I published the book and, and stuff I'm working on now, looking at as they prepare um, uh, the, the folks around Trump, you can say, well, Trump doesn't really want to be president. The Heritage Foundation, this big right-wing think tank, and they put together this huge, huge policy document. And they're recruiting 5,000 lawyers to defend it, right? Um, they're not going to be, they didn't expect to win Trump mm -hmm. won, mm -hmm. and they weren't ready. Um, they're not going to make that mistake again. Yeah. And and God help us, let us not make it ourselves. Um, I want people to read this book, not it's not a campaign book. I don't have any advice for you on, you know, what to do, but I want you to get a sense of the scale and the shape of things, some of the currents that are feeding into it. And I want to frame it with some hope and, yeah. and, and, you know, to sort of remember that the struggle is long. Um, yeah. And I'm just talking to activists. I'm talking to every, I'm not even primarily talking to activists. Uh -huh. I'm talking primarily to everyday people who, yeah. you know, you, you got kids who go to school or you teach at a school or right. you have a town and a town board. And if you think you're in a deep blue area, I mean, I think Sacramento is kind of a, uh, where you are, Pete, uh -huh. is, uh, I would have thought of it as a deep blue place. I suppose it is, but uh, I was pretty stunned in the book. I start my journey at, yeah. in Sacramento at a, at a rally for Ashley Babbitt, the woman killed on January 6th. And it's, uh, Proud Boys versus Goko Antifa, mm. and the cops, the Sacramento police. I mean, there's a, some there's some local reporting for someone to do there. Mm. They were quite happy to look on as, yeah. and I'm not even defending the Antifa guys because they, uh -huh. they were there to fight. Um, sure. But and I, you know, I I would even talk to I talked to some of these cops. They 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 were not going to arrest Proud Boys unless mm. they had. Man, like you said, you kind of starting in the middle of the book, you you bookend it with first part is regarding the great Harry Belafonte. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just jealous that you got to spend time with him. Oh, I would. Right? May he place. rest in peace. I feel like he died, I think, earlier this year, right? Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. At age 96. And then you ended with Lee Hayes, who, you know, I I, I don't consider myself a, an expert on, you know, the folk music, you know, movements, but, I, you know, I definitely know about Pete Seeger and... Yeah. Lee Hayes, you know, has the famous Goodnight Irene. 
You know what Correct. I mean? And uh -huh. if I had a hammer, he was a guy. So Pete's listeners out there will probably know like Pete Seeger, Lee uh -huh. Hayes is a songwriting partner, and they had a band called the Weavers. And like, you right. know, it the reason I began with Harry, Harry Belfonte and end with 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 the Weavers, Good Night Irene. Good night, Irene. This is not a political song. Hell no. yeah, it is. And the Weavers, the Weavers were blacklisted. They were so political. Pete mm -hmm. Seeger gets called, you know, let like let's compare. You know, we had that recent incident with the uh the three college presidents who were testifying right. in Congress and um and and the 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 Republicans were asking questions in bad faith. Do you denounce genocide? But they were sort mm -hmm. of setting but these three presidents were not profiles encouraged. They were like, well, depends on the context. Mm. Context. Compare that with Pete Seeger, com, uh, in, uh, uh, invited uh, before HUAC. That was the committee that would invest communism. He didn't take the Fifth Amendment. He didn't refuse to answer. He looked at the 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 Congress people, the congressmen, all congressmen, huh. each of the districts, and he had prepared. He says, well, he says, you know, I'm not going to take the Fifth Amendment because I haven't done anything wrong. Ooh. And he says. But I prepared a song for you from your district, and it'd be a radical labor song. Yeah. And he was, they sentenced him to a year in prison, um, which yeah, he yeah. appeal never had to serve. Yeah. That was that was how you stand up to fascism, not like what? Let's go forget it. You uh, stand up to state no, right? So I wanted to start and end the book with these yeah. songs. Harry Belafonte, most people know, you know the Banana Boat song. They oh, they uh -huh. like that's a. You know, you, you you read it. Harry understood that as a radical work song. He understood himself in the struggle. He played an instrumental role in the civil rights movement. Arguably, there is no civil rights movement without right. Harry, who was bankrolling it, who was one of Martin Luther King's right hand men. Mm -hmm. And um, and I thought, like, look, both these guys, Harry Belfani. Oh, it's sort of you know, Deo. That's a fun song. Lee Hayes. Nobody remembers him, but we remember Goodnight Irene. Yeah. On top of old smoke, you've had a you know, and to say, wait a minute, those have been smoothed, sanded down by time, but let us remember that the struggle is long. Mm. There are radical resources for us in the past, artistically, and and let us also be clear, because Mr. B, Harry Belfonte would be clear, Lee Hayes would be clear. They got beat. They didn't win. This isn't. A Hollywood story. Harry Belfonte hated what he called the Hollywoodization of the civil rights movement. Mm. You know, it's like oh, now we're all past that. He's like, no. With, yeah, yeah, he yeah. died at age ninety-six, filled with joy and filled with anger. Sure, because the struggle is long, and that helps us remember what happens if Trump gets elected yeah. next November. Yeah, the next day you get up and you keep fighting. The struggle is long. And that's what we wanted. That's the hope I also wanted to give my kids. I wanted it to be the anti-apocalyptic hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The sky falls down. What do you do? You pick it up. Yeah. Uh, we've been in this fight for a long time, and there's probably a long time to go. But look at the beautiful songs we have made along the way. Right. You talk about the uh, Hollywoodization of the civil rights era and some great points in the book about Harry Belafonte just being friends with Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, they'd have a drink together. You know, it wasn't they, you know, he'd he'd see him in street clothes. You know what I mean? Like they it wasn't something where they just, you know, we knew him from all his speeches talking about Martin Luther King and um, and just knowing him as a normal person was really interesting. You you write about Belafonte you called arguably or maybe what would have been the most, excuse me, it was the most revolutionary hour in TV history. Yeah. So that, so the way that Harry Belafonte story came about was uh, I, I was uh, doing some writing for Rolling Stone magazine and I did not, I did culture and politics. I didn't do the music writing. That was a okay. different thing. Yeah. I said, you want to do a story about Harry Belafonte? And I'm like, no, why would I, I don't do celebrity stories. <laughs> Like, yeah. I mean, the Dale guy, I, <laughs> a fun novelty song. I don't know. They're like, you know, yeah. just, just look into it, right? And I started looking into it and I started understanding first, you know, first I had, I encountered all the firsts. Like, this is the first black man to win an Emmy, first black man to win right. an, an Academy it's Award. Tony, for, I think, right? Yeah, yeah Tony, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, first, first. And, and most importantly, 
the first person to sell a million records, not Elvis, but it's Harry Belafonte the same damn year that Elvis does. Wow. Remember Elvis and his record Calypso. And I go back and I listen to that record Calypso and I start hearing it not as novelty music, but as can you imagine putting that on your record player and you never heard anything like this? <laughs> what the hell? This is this is long before world music. You never heard anything like this. And you uh... put that on your record player. And so I said, okay, I'm in. And um, and I went to, uh, I think it was the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, was the only place you could see this. Uh, you can see this hour of television now, finally on YouTube. Thank uh, God, man. social media, right? Um, but at the time, you had to go to this museum, and it was the Revlon, the makeup company. It hired right. him an hour of because you couldn't could script anything better than right. I mean, right? I mean, Revlon, like yeah, yeah, Revlon, and it was introduced by a starlet of the time, a white woman, Miss Barbara Britton, and now we'll be having this lovely evening, and she's in a ball gown, and you know, everyone knows <laughs> Harry Belfonte. I mean, he's a gorgeous man, one of the most beautiful men ever. Looking dude, yeah. yeah. Right. It's like, oh, like, oh, I love all the white America. I love the Harry Belafonte. Uh, you know, cut to Kachink. What's this? Kachink. Kachink. And then you see these like the arms, the black men's arms. Boom. Like, what, what what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Realize it's a chain gang. Yeah. Chains. Chained people. And on comes Harry Belafonte, the most beautiful man. Every white woman in America, every straight white woman is fantasizing about him. You know, oh, he's so darling. He's wonderful. And it comes on and he is angry and mean. And he's, I don't want, I can't sing, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. He's taking his old songs he got from Lead Belly, great American folk singer. Yeah. And the whole hour. Odetta, you know, people don't, Odetta was a powerhouse singer. I can't mm. recommend it enough. The first time I heard Odetta, heard of Odetta, when I was then a young person, I was watching Animal House, mm. which is a bunch of white frat boys <laughs> who have at Dartmouth College. Yeah, that's right. It is into high kind of hijinks, and they think they've got soul, and they encounter an Odetta type folk singer, and uh, what a joke! Uh, Those little boys, they did not understand the power in the voice. You see Odetta come on the stage, and she's singing a song called Water Boy, and she is a big woman she is not doing anything to sweeten herself just a presence the, yeah she's a presence yeah. anger and i'm like my god the it was i think it was some kind of western you know kids tv show that was like tonight we have a special so you're not going to see your gunfighter special mm -hmm. i i mean i was sitting there in that museum watching it on my monitor just sort of crying saying like this was the alternate history of america he was supposed to do a series of specials. Revlon was like, holy shit. Uh, yeah. you all the money just to you can't put that on TV. Can you imagine in that year turning on your TV to see some equivalent of Bonanza? Huh. And you saw that. Produced, by the way, directed by Norman Lear. That's just right. Died. Also just died. Yeah. Giant Norman Lear. And, you know, when he died, he's a giant. Belfonte picked him to direct it because Norman Lear, not quite blacklisted as a communist, but he had bought him out for being too radical. Yeah, right. Harry was such a star that he could bring Norman Lear in. And yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. I really recommend it. A, a, a Night with Belfonte. You can find it on YouTube. Don't mm -hmm. buy my book. Watch that. It'll uh, radicalize you and it'll give you hope. We'll do both. And and I, I've always been interested in, in Lead Belly ever since. And if you remember, Kurt Cobain did the famous um, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Yeah. yeah. Lead Belly and tells a little bit about him. And I believe book. that was one of the last songs Kurt Cobain performed. It was, right. I, I think, the last. And I mean, there's you talk about iconic, iconic images. There's, you know, the, the kind of the freeze frame of him kind of. <gasps> Like reading, like singing the last parts. I mean, I, I go back and watch every once in a while. But he he talks. He's kind of joking with the crowd about you know someone approached him to buy Lead Belly's guitar, and you know I just have a, a general vague understanding of him as a American, you know, just like a progenitor, like the family tree. Um, so Lead Belly, yeah. So that song Nirvana. I mean, I'm not a real Nirvana fan, but I yeah. was for a while I was thinking of writing about that song. Pete Seeger sings it too. Mm -hmm. Seeger, we think of as a sweet old man. But yeah, Pete was a fucking pissed as hell kind of guy uh -huh. 
Yeah, I was going to write a book about him, and then and I met, spent some time with him. I'm like, you're incredibly warm on the space stage. <laughs> you're not a, <laughs> you're a sharp figure, you know. And he sings a version of that same song that Kurt Cobain sang. And you know, so many of those songs in the songbook come from Lead Belly, and yeah. also, and it's a little bit like what I want to say is like there are resources for us as we face the scary present, as we face our climate conditions, as we face fascism, everything else. There are resources for us in the past from those who have faced it. And Lead Belly, like, oh, on top of Old Smokey, isn't that a wonderful song? Uh Good Night Irene is a song good. You know, Good Night Irene is a song about addiction. I mean, these were songs about dark American truths and artists trying to make sense of them. Lead Belly... I uh, I won't use the word, but here was a guy in Life Magazine in the 1940s did a feature in Lead Belly, this great songwriter. Uh-huh. Life Magazine in the 1940s, the headline was a bad N-word. I won't use the word. Right. And the violence of the past is so, is, is just evident in that title. Yeah. And the violence of the presence, I would argue, is evident in the way that we smooth some of those people over. Mm. Um, and that that we make them, isn't that just wonderful, the American songbook? Lead Belly was a challenge. Yeah. Lee Hayes was a challenge. Harry Belfonte was a challenge. Right. And even in throughout the book, as I'm wandering around right-wing American Americana, I keep finding these people these, they're challenging from the right. Well, that's one thing. But there's also this, these little moments. They're there. We have to pay attention to them. We're not dependent on waiting uh-huh. for the next Barack Obama. We're not sitting there saying, well, geez, Joe Biden is not necessarily the candidate we would want. Mm. This can be constructed at the local level. Um, and uh, uh, I don't know. That's a hope that I take. The last line of the book, and I'll give it away, was actually the first thing that I wrote. I was first piece in the, the last piece in the book is by Lee Hayes, but it was the first thing in the book that I wrote. And um, and I've been immersing myself in Lee Hayes' life. And I was reading this, uh, this unusual memoir he had published and he's describing this moment and he's driving through um, the Arkansas country. So now Lee Hayes is a big guy, mm-hmm. big white guy, big white guy in Arkansas but not entirely a brave man. First of all, he's gay, but he's closeted. He's got a secret and so on. But also Pete Seeger, a skinny little whippet, but Pete Seeger was fearless. Woody Guthrie was fearless. To each, I'm always more interested in those of us, who, those who express courage, not because they're fearless, but because they're afraid. Yeah. I'm not Woody Guthrie, I'm not Pete Seeger, but maybe I could be a Lee Hayes who was terrified uh-huh. as and is going through the Arkansas countryside and a, a car full of union organizers black mm-hmm. and white and gun company thugs whatever company they're trying to organize are on their tail with guns and this is it and they're scared they're scared they're gonna die and so they sing and we hate they sing radical songs they're radicals they sing radical songs but they all they're southerners they'd all been raised in the church right and they don't believe anymore but they they believe in that that sound that harmony and they all start singing hymns and they're singing hymns and they're harmonizing together, hoping that they survive. And this beautiful line that Lee Hayes has, he says, for a while, it was possible not to be scared even. For a while, it was possible not to be scared even. And that to me, I knew that. I was like, that's it. That's the last line of the book. That I can't tell, I can't tell my kids, don't worry, it's going to all be okay. Uh-huh. I can say, I can't even say I can create a safe space. Mm. I believe in safe spaces, but I believe in them the same way I believe in things that have not yet to come. It's something you try and right. You can't uh, shape those external forces, right? That that might right. take away the safety. Yeah, I think about this in terms of uh, uh, another Arkansas organizer. Uh, I spent some time with Suzanne Farr, legendary organizer, uh, created a lesbian commune in rural Arkansas in the nineteen seventies, eighties. That's a tall <laughs> order. Uh-huh. And local women who were victims of domestic violence started coming to them for help. Well, what are they going to do? Well, can't turn your neighbor away. So they let them in. Well, then the spouses start coming. Mm. You know, 
you, you, they don't like this the lesbian give me my my wife back my girlfriend back and these men come with guns so what does Suzanne do what do her comrades do they stand their ground they're like we'll go toe to toe with you you, you want to try and come in here it's going to pay a cost now she told me and a group of young activists a story and this one young activist says oh that's so beautiful you made a safe space uh, and Suzanne who for all her radicalism is like a sweet old like sweet tea southern granny uh, white hair says oh honey she says that's puts her hand on on this young activist hand says there are no fucking safe spaces <laughs> there are no safe spaces there yeah. should be but there are safe moments that we can create together for a while yeah. as possible not to be scared even in this car being chased with the gun thugs right they created a safe moment that's what a song is a yeah. safe moment Maybe it's that last song that you cited by by Kurt Cobain. You know the oh. songs, and and I I don't insist. You know, if you don't like this music, that's fine. It's not really my music either. Sure. I love Harry Belafonte. It's not my music. It's not my yeah. go-to, and so on. Yeah, those are safe moments, not safe spaces, and uh -huh. we we can knit more and more of those together. That is my my hope. Well, there's a. It's funny because the picture comes before the the description of it in in the undertow section which is, is this cross country trip that you take through a lot of churches through a lot of trump rallies um I'll, I'll never ever 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 get over the idea of him having rallies while he was president i don't that doesn't compute with me do you know what i mean yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> churches and religion but there's a picture of the girl i want to i forget if it's a sign or a shirt i think it's a sign that says basically fuck off Oh, 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 my hero. Okay. All right. That, that's my good. Well, so let me tell you real quick. So I thought, I thought that she was going to be, because it was in the section about Wisconsin, which I love you to talk about, which is such an interesting place because, you know, there's so much progressivism there, but there's also, it's also the direct opposite. But I was thinking that that was, you were writing about Wisconsin and these people that have 10 and 12 and 20 and 30 guns in civil war, like you talked about. So I thought she was going to be, I was like, oh, I feel for the girl. I felt like she was a young girl probably who has been given the gospel of civil war yeah. by the right wing, yeah. but it turns out not, but go ahead. I'm sorry. So, all right. So that's Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Yeah. And now in uh, uh, 2022, I'm in Wisconsin and the ruling for Roe comes down and I happen to be staying with friends and I'm talking with a friend and friend is going through IVF at that moment and she's mm -hmm. on the table in the stirrup seeing her doctor. Yeah. The doctor comes in the room, the decision. And Wisconsin is technically a blue state, a Democratic governor, mm -hmm. completely gerrymandered, far-right Republican uh, um, uh, legislature. And it reverts to 1849 law, which makes abortion illegal, zero exceptions. And the doctor comes in to this acquaintance uh, while she's there trying to actually have a child and says, I can't keep trading you, treating you because IVF is now subject to this law because IVF creates, can, can create multiple embryos. So it could lead to an abortion. And so I decided, all right, so what I'm going to do, this is my method. My method is always like, now I'm just going to drive around. I'm just going to drive around Wisconsin. Here I am in a blue state, yeah. suddenly the most reactionary state in the country. Reactionary is the word, yeah. And talk to these people who are excited about this. And I drove all over. But I get to the little town of Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Now, this is, Wisconsin is a divided state. It's a very divided state. And two counties, Milwaukee and Dane County, which is Madison, mm. keep it at all in contention as a blue state. Falls uh -huh. is not in one of these counties. Uh -huh. This little town, a little street leading up to a big church at the head of the street that looms over it. There's the Black River. There's a casino on the edge of town. And I come into the town and uh, uh, it's just a couple of days after. And there's a, a young woman standing on the bridge. And her sign says, your misogyny is showing. Uh, and and I stopped talking to her a little bit and, and then gradually friends come and join her. Now, I'm going to say this. If if on the off chance are any young straight men out there listening to your show or you know any, the people joined her were young women and young queer men. Not one single young straight man had the guts to stand on that bridge where people were honking at her. A local preacher comes and starts screaming at her. And she, this woman's not even five foot tall. This guy, big guy, bulking over her, screaming at her. She's going out. She stands her ground for a while. 
for a moment as possible not to be scared even she's creating a safe moment and along comes this woman who there's a full page photograph of her she's a cheerleader and now these these kids are not radical i mean they are radical kids but they're not right. in a hipster town this is a small town yeah. far from anything this is a cheerleader for the black river falls tigers and she has made a sign to come and stand with her friend and stand in solidarity and her sign says fuck you huh. what's that mean right so i go and i talk to her and i said what does it mean she says fuck you and just fuck you to everybody the people who took away my rights the people who didn't protect my rights it's fuck you it's fuck you to you and me pete we're old yeah. just like saying like hey yeah. you had a job you had a job and you did not do it. And I'm not waiting for you to protect me anymore. Mm. And I'm like, well, these, these kids are the heroes of yeah. this book. I spent time with them and and, and ended up uh, uh, spending the rest of the, the, the evening with them. And we all went out to a, a local diner and, um, you know, they're just kids in a small town. They would go to the diner because it's the only place to go. The late at oh. Perkins. And they're just eating their peeps of pancakes and waffles, you know, yeah. the way kids can just like consume one and calories. And, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I raised that civil war question with them. And it's true. They didn't have a clear eye. They thought it's coming too. And they thought they were ready for it. And um, that's sad. Hmm. But the good news is, the good news is, I, I teach, and I don't know if you see this with your students. I see sometimes my students say like, um, uh, I, I should have been protected or um, I should not have been exposed to this passive voice, right? Mm. And I always want to say, that's right, you're right. The college should be protecting students from violence. It should be doing this, but it's not. It's not, we've got to organize ourselves. Mm. And these kids were doing that. So it's a weird, it's a weird, book that begins with these kind of old folky songs and yeah. toward the end in Wisconsin you get this full page picture of this young woman holding a sign saying fuck off mm -hmm. and and that sign is the hope and and she's the hero yeah ask you a quick question that's kind of lighthearted yeah. lighthearted ish but but has deeper deep roots I guess why the absolute obsession with with gear with swag with memorabilia <laughs> with you know with Trump <laughs> Trump, you know, masks and you yeah. know, he's selling his gold coins. What, what is? I mean, I, I just, I don't, I will never in a million years understand it. Even, even the hat. Yeah, I don't get that. Do you have any insight? That's a, that's kind of like a weird, good question, right? It's like, uh, you know, material culture. Um, I, I think of the, there's an essay in the book called Heavy with Gold, and it goes back to the 2016 rallies, and I'm traveling around, going to 26 rallies, and this is the first one I go to in Youngstown, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, we're waiting and, and you know, it's he doesn't have Air Force One yet because he's not president. So it's called Trump Force One. It's his, his own big yeah. plan. And we're just standing there for hours waiting. I'm just I don't go in as press. I just go in as an ordinary person. I stand. Sure. I might explain sure. who I am, but like I don't want to be in the press pen. Just talk to folks. And they just loved rhapsodizing about this plane. And yeah. that heavy with gold comes from one of them. That plane's going to be coming in heavy with gold. Mm -hmm. You know, the gold toilet, the gold sink, the gold this. Yes. He's a great businessman, right? Great yeah. businessman. You get your gold coin. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like a it's like a Catholic relic. You mm -hmm. know, like Saint's bone. You got a little piece of it. It's totemic. It's magic. You got a yeah. piece of a miracle, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think there's some element of that. And then I think there's also... Um, uh, the Punisher skulls. These are the skull, uh, the all black American flag, which is mm. the scary flag. This is yeah. uh, the proliferation of flags. Yeah. Um, it's worth remembering. I guess it's not much of an answer for you, but no, I get it. I mean, it's fascism it's, it's, is an aesthetic movement. Fascism is about, yeah. it is about, you know, it's not about policy. None of these people give a fuck about policy, but look at my hat, mm -hmm. my gun, mm -hmm. you know, Look how cool I look with this AR. Look at um, my guns, plural, right? Jeez. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, that that is helpful note. So so I'm just gonna say, like, uh -huh. as always, they got their aesthetic. The good news is the rest of humanity. I don't want to say the left, the rest yeah. of humanity has <laughs> has a whole range of aesthetics and beautiful images and objects yes. that we can use. 
when with this you know it would have been easy to just do the old like oh you know the youth are our future and they're going to save us and there's and that's true and it's true that they are on those front lines in so many ways it they are be. they are on the front lines but we gotta we can't wait for them to say no 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 we gotta all together <laughs> save ourselves but you also i also appreciate there's the there's a great picture too of the guy there's no caption the older man i want to say don maybe Don, yeah, yeah, right. Who's also who's also fighting that fight, and he, you know, he doesn't necessarily follow the stereotypes of, you know, the white man from Wisconsin kind of thing. And there were so many; it could have been so many easy answers in this book. And obviously, because it's nonfiction, that you don't you don't make it that way. But it's like it would have been so hard to make it. Just keep fighting, and you do say that, but you have concrete examples of, like you said, the the old and the new. And it's a book again that, that everyone needs to pick up. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I feel like I'm 95 times smarter than I was before. <laughs> well, thank you. I can tell you're a good teacher because you, you you ask the questions that bring out some 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 answers. So thank you. I really appreciate it. What grade do you teach? I teach mostly like Spanish two, so sophomores and juniors, and I teach English 10. So we just finished Things Fall Apart today. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So we're doing yeah. colonialism, the danger of a single story, and that type of thing. That's so fast. You know, we read Things Fall Apart when I was in... I don't remember what grade it was. Classic, and, right? The word colonialism did not enter into mm -hmm. our it, wow. it was just a work of of, of literature, right? Uh -huh. the, the improvement of the time. So, oh my gosh, things fall apart, and then sometimes they come together. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. pleasure has been to speak today with Jeff Charlotte. Continued good luck to him with his writing and his important work. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Chills of Will podcast. Like what you heard today? Please retweet episode info, share on social media and via word of mouth. It all helps and it's all appreciated. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1. You can also subscribe to the Chills of Will Podcast channel on YouTube. You will find this episode as well as many other episodes of the podcast. Sign up now for the Chills of Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 218 with Melissa Rivero. She is the author of The Affairs of the Falcons and the recently published novel Flores and Miss Paula. Melissa won the 2019 New American Voices Award, a 2020 International Latino Book Award, and was longlisted for the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Novel. This episode will air on January 2nd, 2024. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Jeff Charlotte, whose work, like The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, gives you chills at will. Mm -hmm.